All right. Why don't you guys go ahead, grab your seats. Um, uh, welcome. Welcome for coming. Thanks for coming out, Crossway. Um, I think most of you know me, know me, but if you don't, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I just have a couple comments before we get started, and then um, Justin's going to come up. He'll speak, and then we're going to save some time at the end for some Q&A. So just as we're going through it, if things kind of, you'd like to hear more about that, just make a note in your notes, and then we're going to come back at the end, and we'll have a way for the people who are at home to ask their questions as well. Um, you should have on your way in grabbed notes on that table. If you didn't get notes, just head on back there and grab. There's some pens back there as well. Um, we obviously have got coffee and tea and water over here, if, if that would serve you. Um, Friday forums are one facet of what we call discipleship training. It's our, our courses and workshops that we host to help people grow in their following of Jesus, in their in being disciples. So on the front of your notes, if you got notes at the back page, you should have a little half sheet that lists our upcoming DT classes. I just want to draw your attention to two of those. One, I just want you to note, I pointed this out on Sunday, but um, Dave Finkbeiner's class, his second class on Christian doctrine, on what the Bible teaches about salvation and the Holy Spirit, the church, the last things when Jesus returns, that class begins this coming Wednesday. And so you can sign up using that half sheet. Just drop it in the basket on your way out, and we'll get you signed up for that. The second one is, if you just look a couple months out, I'll be teaching a class on suffering, on how to walk through suffering, whether your own suffering or how to walk with someone else through theirs. The Bible has amazing resources for people living in a world where suffering is an inescapable reality for every one of us. It's coming for all of us, and the Bible has resources to walk through it well. So if that would serve you, I'd love for you to join us for that class um, again, if you want to sign up for those, just mark it with a pen, put that half sheet in the basket on your way out. We'll get you signed up. Now, Friday forums, which is what we're here for tonight, these are opportunities for us to engage with topics of cultural urgency from a biblical perspective, a perspective grounded in scripture and centered on Jesus. Our speaker tonight is Justin Denny. Many of you know that Justin is a church planting resident here at Crossway. He is investing his life to see people become and grow as disciples of Jesus in the Wilson neighborhood of Kenosha. He's a, a devoted student of scripture. He's a gifted teacher. I know many of you probably were um, benefited from his class on Augustine in the fall. So this, this topic tonight, identity, is one that Justin has been thinking about for some time, and I'm eager for us to benefit from this. So Justin, why don't you come on up? Well, good evening. I want you to imagine you're looking out at a field of apple trees. You go up to one tree and notice that the fruit looks a little bit different. There's something going on. So you start watering the tree more and making some other adjustments, but it's just not changing. Then you go to the next tree and see that it has the same problem. So you go through the same cycle to try and fix it. But then you take a step back and look and you see that the whole orchard has the same problem. All the trees look the same, and you decide to get a sampling of the soil, and there you find the problem. A change in the soil caused all these trees to change at the same time. Over the last few Friday forums, we've addressed a handful of, of, of these trees, big issues that we all see something's going on with. We've talked about politics. We've talked about race. 
These are glaring issues we know are important. They're the big trees in our culture that we can see something's going on. And we look out and we can see that a whole lot of trees, there are a whole lot of these trees in our culture. There's homosexuality and transgenderism, identity politics, pluralism, threats to religious freedom. And if we treat these individually, if we look at them individually, we're going to miss something really important. Yes, the trees, there's something going on with them. The fruit doesn't look right, uh, but it's something that's wrong with the soil. Now, these, these issues that are so prevalent, whether they're sexual issues that are just everywhere in our culture, um, they're prevalent and they're threatening because of how people see identity. Religion is being uh, kind of addressed the way it is in the public square because of issues related to identity. Uh, people dismiss Christian ethics because of the way we see identity. Identity is the soil in which these objections are growing, the roots underlying so many of these debates. So if we want to understand what's going on in our world, we need to understand the issue of identity. Now let me first talk to a few different groups of people uh, that I want to address tonight. So first is, is Christians. Uh, you're in the boat that I just described. You, you're, you might be distressed on what's going on in culture. I want you to see the root of these problems. I want you to see that, that there's something going on underneath that needs to be addressed and understood. I want us to bring us to that level. Uh, but I also want us to see that, that some of us, we've, we've also been shaped by some of these, the, the, the features of modern identity. We're growing in the same soil as some of the trees that we're noticing. And on the flip side, many of you might be from a more traditional culture. You see things going on in, your, in our world, and you're confused and maybe angry. You're concerned for your kids and your grandkids. So I hope this, this talk will help you understand what's going on, how to think biblically, and how to shepherd your family. I also want to talk to non-Christians. So perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. You might dismiss Christianity because of what it says about gender or sexuality or morality. You don't like it. You think it's oppressive and restricting. Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome. You'll notice that I'll spend some time talking specifically to Christians, but I hope this talk speaks to you as well. I hope you'll see it, and I hope that you can at least come away with an understanding of why Christians might think the way that we do, uh, what the Bible says, and perhaps even a better understanding of the roots of your own thinking. Uh, finally, I want to talk to students and their parents, or maybe uh, you have young kids. So if you're a student or you're raising children, you must know how the world is forming us on identity. Some of those fundamental pursuits of your life and your kids' life, lives will be driven by modern identity, and you need to know what it is and what Christianity says. All right, so let's, let's take a quick look at the roadmap, and then we'll dig in uh, to the, the main body here. So here's where we're going. I want to define identity and modern identity. I want to critique modern identity. And I want to contrast modern identity with Christianity. So that first part, I want us to understand the soil. 
then I want to try to give you categories for understanding what's going on, what's, what, might, what might be wrong with the soil. And I want to give you, uh, and then I want to provide this different soil that has some, some shared features with modern identity, but some very different features as well. Um, but with that, I want you to see that Christianity offers good news. That in the midst of all of these issues, what can get lost is how profound and how life-giving Christianity is. And I want us to see that. It's going to take some work for us to get there. We'll have to spend a lot of time talking about modern identity, but it's for a purpose. Uh, It's serving something. And there's a limited amount of of stuff that we can get done in a single night. So I provided you with a bibliography at the end. And some of the, a lot of those resources are very helpful. And as I've said, I think this is one of the most important issues that we're dealing with in our culture. And it is vital that we be informed on them. So these resources will be very helpful for you. All right. Well, let's dig in. Let's first ask, what is identity? So identity is the source that you look to for meaning and significance. It answers the questions like, what defines us? What, what, gives me, uh, what, what gives us our identity is asking what makes us valuable or what we value as people. Is it what your family thinks of you? What other people think of you? Is it following your own heart? We get answers to this question from our culture. Uh, One of the big reasons that identity is so powerful, that this issue is so powerful, is because it's almost invisible. Remember, it's in the soil, and people don't pay attention to the soil. They look at the trees. But like soil in an orchard, modern identity carries enormous influence over our culture and over our lives, even though we can't see it. It's like it gives us a script for how to live that we're all working on, but we rarely step back to see that we're working on the same script. Uh, We will be blindsided if we don't understand what's going on. So in this next section, my goal is to help us understand what modern identity is by contrasting it with traditional identity. And by the end of tonight, I hope you'll be able to recognize what modern identity is, and I hope you'll be able to recognize it when you watch it in a movie or listen to it in a song, or pass it and see it on a billboard, or hear it in a conversation with a coworker, or hear it in a conversation uh, with your children. It's like I'm offering you a pair of glasses that will allow us to look out and see things, uh, see and understand the world better, because understanding modern identity is going to be half the battle here. All right, let's look at signs of identity. How do we know what modern identity is versus what traditional identity is? So this first, the first sign is, it answers the question, where should you look for your identity? A traditional identity looks outward. You receive an identity from your community and your family, most significantly from your parents. If your father was a blacksmith or a laborer, you'd be a, probably be a blacksmith or a laborer as well. You'd probably most certainly stay in the same social class as he was. You stay in, the same, in that same strata as your parents. And your parents direct much of your life, or your family does. 
If your parents wanted you to go to this school, then you go to this school. Uh, If you're a woman, you're expected to bear children and tend to the home, and you get your value by conforming to what society expects to you in that. So traditional identity says, it doesn't matter as much what I want. I'm going to do what what I'm expected to do. I'm not going to marry who I want. I'm going to marry who my parents expect me to marry or what my parents expect me to do with my life. So if you see the source of affirmation that you get to find value in your life is outward, whether it's the expectations of your family or some other outward source, Uh, You see that the role of the parents in society, in a traditional identity, is to give the child a role that they need to follow. All right, let's contrast that to a modern identity. So modern identity says, you don't look look to other people to determine who you are. Just look inside yourself. Uh, Just look, um, if you want to determine who you are as a person, look at your desires, kind of how you tick. One example here would be your, what you do as a vocation. So whereas traditionally you would kind of ask, what, what, what did your parents expect you to do? Well now, how does someone determine their vocation? Really is it, some, in some cases it could be their parents are pushing something, but in most cases it's like, well, what do you want to do? Uh, what do you want to do with your life? What, what types of things do you like to do? So it's a transition in what you do and where you look for that guidance. You see, the source of affirmation that we're told that we should have is inward. How do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about yourself is what matters. It doesn't matter about what other people want you to do or want you to be. It matters what you want to be. And the role of the parent and the society is to allow children to discover themselves. So let me read this quotation from Fred Rogers. Uh, I have come to believe that what children need most to acquire in the early years is a feeling of self-worth and a positive outlook on the world. Letting our children find their true selves may mean resisting the desire to impose our own interests on them or suffering disappointment when they do not follow in our footsteps. But this freedom to find themselves is an important step in the development of all children's true potential. Did you hear that? You're not supposed to impose on your kids. You're supposed to kind of let them explore for themselves. All right, so that's sign number one. Just a quick note here. I'm, I'm just trying to describe the differences right now. So just give a lay of the land as to what they are. Uh, later on, I'll more evaluate it, but some of these things will be good, and some of these things will be bad in each of these categories from a Christian standpoint. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. All right, let's get to sign number two. What does a culture value? What's the value that this culture is working with? So we're in a traditional, with traditional identity, the value is honor. One scholar puts it this way, power, sexual status, and religious structures all come together to determine one's honor within a social group. The purpose of honor is to provide a kind of rating scale by which a person knows how to interact with one's equals, superiors, and subordinates in society. Maintenance maintenance of honor within one's status level was more important than seeking any change in one's status, socioeconomically or otherwise. 
In other words, your place in society was largely determined for you. The worst thing you could do in an honor-based society is to step out of those social boundaries, to spurn cultural ex expectations, because that produces shame. Society gives you a role, and your job is to play that role well. So for men, it meant, it meant doing your vocation well. It meant protecting your family and its honor. It meant gaining approval of the right men in society. And failure to do that meant you would be spurned. And we've already talked about women had a certain place and expectation as well of bearing and raising children. If you did that, you would have honor. You were playing the role you were expected to play. If you didn't, you could be scorned. That's, that's traditional. Traditional identity values honor. Modern identity values autonomy. You have the right to live as you see fit. You get to choose who you are. Not your family or your society. Autonomy says, why do you care if, uh, why do you care who someone else loves? Why do I care, why do you care what I do with my body? Why do you tell other people what they should and shouldn't do when it doesn't impact you? Just let people be themselves. Being true to yourself, being authentic is the most important virtue. So I'm going to show a, a clip here in just a second. Um, we'll see that the, uh, you, if, you, if you kind of take this lens and look out just as you are uh, going through the grocery store, as you're watching TV, as you're passing billboards, you'll see this everywhere. Uh, you could see songs and movies and billboards, education. This, this principle of autonomy is everywhere. So let me play a video here. Did it turn off? Did it turn off? The, the projector's off. All right, we'll get to it in a second. All right, so you hear this, you hear this in different places. One, of, one example is from a Taylor Swift song, so listen to this. And I ain't trying, uh, I ain't trying to mess with your self-expression, but I've learned that lesson, that stressing, and obsessing about everyone else is no, but no fun. So don't worry about other people. Don't worry about what they're doing. Just follow whatever you want to do. Mind your own business. Leave other people alone for them to act how they want. So many movies follow this same narrative arc. The main character bucks society's expectations and follows their inner drive. That's what a hero is. Uh, following your heart, even if everyone opposes you. So you can see it in most every Disney movie. Uh, you can see it in Pocahontas, in Mulan. So let me play this clip. Bo 24 keeping it real with Fernando Tatis Jr. Being a rule breaker is not cool. Yes, it is. <laughs> like Bolt 24 Energized, it's lower in sugar and it has caffeine. Writing its own rules. So did you hear that? It says that it says that what you should do is make your own rules. Don't don't let other people tell you what to do. You should be a rule breaker. That's what's cool. So and do, you, do you see that it's subtle? It's subtly done, and it's kind of injected in all these different places in our society. 
So the reason we see stories about, for example, the first woman ref in the Super Bowl is because it relates to this notion of autonomy and self-actualization. She was able to overcome social boundaries and realize her dream. So these, these issues are about identity. Uh, that's what, what's going on underneath. Um, all right. So let me, let me give an aside now uh, as to how identity is transmitted. Uh, how are identities formed? We're seldom taught about identity directly. Kids aren't sat down in school and taught one day. Identity used to be formed, uh, our identity used to be formed by conforming expectations. You should now develop your identity by looking outside of yourself. No, they're not taught that way. They're taught indirectly, implicitly. It's kind of, it's kind of going on underneath the surface in most everything that they're taught. It's taught through stories and songs and commercials and movies. It's taught in who the heroes are. It's taught through the, who, who the popular kids or the popular people are. So did you notice the video? Uh, did you notice the, the swagger, the style, the charisma, the guy with a $340 million baseball contract? All surrounding this idea that you should make your own rules. So it's kind of just portrayed as, as cool and attractive. It's not argued for, it's just presented that way. This means that we don't just teach ourselves something different if we want something different. It, kind of getting an alternative to modern identity requires formation on such a deep level. We need sources of these counter-formation, alternative arcs that tell a better story. All right, so let's go to sign number two. Uh, telltale sign number two of uh, culture, and whether it's traditional or modern, is the why question. The motives that a society gives for work, for relationships, for morality. Why should you be a good person? So if you were in a public setting, like a work environment or a school, and you were asked, why should you do the right thing? What do, what do you think you would say? Or how about a different topic? Why should you get married? Or why should you go to church if you're kind of in a secular setting? So the answer to that question will give an indication as to whether it's a traditional identity or a modern identity, whether you're working with one of those two. So traditional identity says... You should do this, you should be good, you should follow the rules because it's good for society or because God tells us to or because it fits the way the world is. So these reasons are outside of an individual. They focus on relationships and an objective standard. Now contrast that to modern identity. Modern identity asks, why should I be a good person, a good spouse? Why should I, go to, why should I work a job? The answer is, because it's good for me. Because it makes me feel good. It's a psychological reason. You do these things because you feel good about yourself when you do it. So it's here that modern identity is perhaps most pervasive. So why should you get married? Because marriage will make you happy. Why, should you, why do you work? Why do you look for work? You're looking for work to make you happy. 
Uh, why should you go to church? Because of the way that it makes me feel. Uh, why should I do good to other people? Because of how it makes me feel. James Davison Hunter, who's a, he's a sociologist at University of Virginia, he wrote a fascinating book several years ago called The Death of Character. And he looks at character education programs in uh, public schools, in parenting books, and youth organizations, and churches. And overwhelmingly, these, these institutions motivate children to do good by appealing to their own psychological well-being. In other words, do what's right because it makes you feel good. As just one example, Hunter examines a parenting book. The, the book said, or Hunter summarizes it by saying, in short, children should cultivate kindness primarily for the emotional benefit it offers the person and secondarily for the practical benefit of making their world function better. Do good because it will make you feel better about yourself and it'll make the world a better place. Let's call it the Daniel Tiger motivation for ethics. Now, if you have little kids, you've probably seen Daniel Tiger. Um, Peter watched it on our plane ride this week. So there's an episode of Daniel Tiger. Daniel gets to be king for a day. But as the day goes on, Daniel is put in these situations where he has to help others. He finds that helping others makes him feel better than even being a king. Uh, he, helps, he, he helps others and feels good. So the motivation is clear. You should, you should do good for others because of how it makes you feel. The reason you should do good isn't because it fits some standard of right and wrong. It isn't to bless the community, at least not primarily. It isn't because God said so. It's because it made him feel good. Or even if the reasons are directed outward for why you should do good, it's so other people can feel good about themselves. Um, so I was talking to uh, a kid in sixth grade and asked him, uh, he was talking about someone getting bullied and why he wanted to help them. He said, I want to help them because of how it makes the kid feel. Uh, the criteria, the basis for whether something is right or wrong, good or bad, is how it makes someone feel. So if doing good is a matter of how it makes, pe how it makes people feel, then no, no one has the right to tell other people how to act as long as their behavior doesn't harm someone else, as long as it doesn't impact the psychological well-being of someone else. Why is it wrong for two men to get married if they love each other? Why is it wrong to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you're not married? So if the, the point is this psychological well-being, it's really hard to answer some of these questions. Uh, from a Christian perspective. In other words, the Daniel Tiger motivation rests on a certain foundation for ethics. Right and wrong is grounded in what makes you feel good, provided it doesn't harm other people. So I wanted this section to be mostly descriptive, but I need to say something here. I want to say something here. As Christians, we have to give our kids and ourselves reason for living, reasons for doing good, for work, that rests on something other than personal self-esteem. So let's ask the question, what's wrong with Daniel Tiger motivational ethics? Before I answer, let me say first that doing things because it makes you feel good isn't wrong. It's not like Daniel Tiger is just way off the mark and is just completely wrong. 
It's not wrong that helping other people makes you feel good. It's a, it's a nice reason to do good. But as the motivation, as, in, as the motivation that's given, that, this is what Hunter shows, that this is the motivation given across industries, across sectors, across classes in American life, as the reason and as the foundation, Daniel Tiger ethics are problematic. So let me give you a few reasons. First, the Daniel Tiger motivation is inadequate to motivate real change. Sometimes doing good makes you feel good about yourself, but other times the incentives work much differently. Lying might save your job. Helping the poor is inconvenient. Uh, leaving your spouse might be easier. In other words, sometimes, many times, doing good requires sacrifice and reputation and money and status. And we see that people working with the Daniel Tiger ethical motivation oftentimes don't actually do good that often, not nearly as much as people working with different identities. So Hunter did a study that showed that those with the Daniel Tiger motivation which were much less likely to act morally. In other words, the Daniel Tiger motivation doesn't work. Hunter says that real ethical behavior requires tight community shaped by a common story. He says, quote, character outside a lived community, the entanglements of complex social relationships and their shared story is impossible. End quote. Character requires a shared story in a community. And that's what Christianity provides and modern identity doesn't. Second, the foundation of the Daniel Tiger ethics is inadequate because it defines harm too narrowly. Modern identity says, I can do whatever makes me happy as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Well, if Christianity is true, let's imagine this. Let's imagine that Christianity is true then God is infinite in wisdom and in goodness and in joy. And that he created the world to reflect that, to run that way. And that's how he's revealed himself in scripture. Then he knows infinitely better than we do the rules of sexuality. So when he says, don't have sex outside of marriage, he's saying that because he knows it's harmful. It's harmful because it breaks your relationship with him which is the most important thing in the world, the, thing that, the only thing that can truly satisfy us, and it breaks that. So yes, it's harmful to do those things. And it's also harmful because it actually does hurt people, just in ways that we're often blind to. We're blind to it, but most societies in history see harm very differently than we do. They see relationships as interconnected and interwoven, and Western people tend to see individuals as kind of disconnected from relationships. So most societies and most of human history have seen that there's this connection between people that does make those things wrong. And our definition of harm is too narrow. Christians need a different ethical foundation, one that is more robust than just harm and feeling good. I have to move on. Uh, but we can talk about this part more in the Q&A uh, if you want to. All right, the point of that section was to define modern identity. To close it out, 
I want to know, I want to note how modern identity operates in our lives. It operates as a, as a reflex. So if you go to the doctor and they pound just below your knee, your knee kicks. So you have things that just happen once it hits it. And that's how, that's how moral frameworks happen. That's how intuitions work. You, you, you're exposed to a situation, and you don't think about how to reason morally. You just do. Your, your moral taste buds have been trained in a certain way. Uh, so that when you see certain hot-button hot cultural issues, you interpret them in a certain way because you've been trained that way. So they operate at a reflex level, at a very deep and underlying level. So I'm asking us to step back and ask the question, so what if our intuitions are wrong? And I'd say that a lot of our intuitions, mine included, are in part shaped by, our, by modern identity. All right, let's now ask the question, how do we form identities? How, does, how, do, how do we form identity as modern, in modern identity culture? So how do we do that as opposed to a traditional culture? All right, so the first way that we form our identities in, as modern, in a modern identity context is by what we buy. In traditional identity, your identity was given to you. You didn't need to choose it. But in traditional identity, you need to choose your identity, and you need to express your identity. And we choose and express our identity in a lot of ways, and one of the primary ways we do that is through what we buy. So I want to step back and point something out uh, that is insanely prevalent. Celebrity product endorsements. Why on earth does it make sense uh, to buy car insurance just because Aaron Rodgers is on the commercial? Or why does it matter that LeBron James wears this certain shoe? Why should you buy a certain hand lotion just because Jennifer Aniston does or is paid to? And this begs another question. Why on earth would a company pay someone thousands or millions of dollars to be in those commercials? Through buy Here's the answer. Through buying these products, we're told that we can get this famous and glamorous identity vicariously. We, we can attach ourselves to that by buying the product. So I want to point something else out. Uh, when watching commercials, you notice the celebrities, but you also notice that many commercials say almost nothing about the product. So I'll show a clip here in just a second. How many commercials list off bullet points of why you should buy their product and, it will make your, and the, how your, their product will make your life better or more convenient? Right? How, many, how many commercials do that? Almost none except infomercials, and people make fun of those. So let me, let me play a clip here. This is one of the earlier Apple commercials. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, 
about the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things they push the human race forward and while some may see them as the crazy ones we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do So how much of that commercial was about a computer? <laughs> None of it was. And yet, Apple is notorious for its branding, for its marketing. Like people just flocked to that commercial. Because buying an Apple computer meant that you could be like Einstein, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Muhammad Ali. It meant you changing the world and being a part of it. The most successful brands like Apple, Jordan and Nike, Tesla, and the Green Bay Packers tell us a story and say we can be included in it through buying their stuff. We, it's a way it's, that we can choose our identity. So with traditional identity, your identity was pretty stable. It was more or less given to you. But with traditional identity gone, there's this massive void for meaning in our hearts. There's, there's a desperate need for it to be fulfilled. Uh, and so it's, it's going to rush to something to fill that need for meaning and significance and purpose and affirmation. The heart can't live without it. But perhaps more than anyone else in the world, advertisers understand the powerful cravings of our need for identity and they understand the void in our hearts when, when traditional identity has gone away. So they curate their products with celebrities and glamour and coolness to make us believe, to make us feel that we're not just buying insurance or headphones or moisturizer, we're buying an identity, a lifestyle that we can express to ourselves and to the world by buying that product. Whether it's through buying a big truck, essential oils, subscribing to the New York Times, or buying designer brands, people choose and express their identity, their identity through what they buy. All right, so what they buy is one. Another way that we choose our identity uh, is through romantic love and sexuality. Uh, so one of the primary objects modern identity turns to for worth and value is romantic love. For example, if you just look at the most popular songs on, on iTunes, probably around 80 to 90% of them are about romantic or erotic, and erotic, erotic love. 80 to 90%. That's, that's stunning. We're told that, that you find worth and value by acting on your sexual desires. So when, when they're doing that, there's some of it that's just raw, carnal pleasure, and that's the drive for it. But that's not the reason it's so pervasive. It's, it's so pervasive and compelling to so many people. It's because it's fitting this need of identity. It's addressing that. It's one of the main places in modern, our, our, our context, where people are told to find their identity, their value. So if you're in high school, you probably see and feel this as much as anyone. 
The world is telling you that you need to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend to have a good life, to have someone who affirms you. It doesn't tell you this through a lecture or a sermon. It tells you this in movies and in pop songs and a thousand other subtle ways. The way you get value in life is by finding someone who, will fall in love, who you can fall in love with. So you're, we're being shaped by that. Uh, you're being sold something. So the, the place uh, that romance and sexuality has, how it's occupying this place of identity, it, it also explains why issues of homosexuality and transgenderism are so prevalent, are, are, on, are constantly on the news. You see, issues like sexu- homosexuality and transgenderism are so vital because they're I- about identity and not just pleasure. Identity is something you choose, and sexuality is one of the primary places you turn to choose your identity. And if that's true, then to deny someone validation of their sexual preferences means that you're denying them of the, the core things of, that make life worth living. So it's harmful, hateful, and even bigoted to tell someone that they shouldn't be able to act on their sexual desires. That they can't love whoever they want to love. So if we just talk about these sexual issues, if we just engage these sexual issues, it's not going to work. Because underneath of them is this whole different way of understanding the human person. This whole different way of understanding worth. And that's where the disagreement is happening, but that's seldom where the disagreement is actually talked about. Uh, We usually just talk about it on issues like homosexuality or transgender bathrooms. That's where the debate happens. Um, But there can be no real dialogue because we're talking past each other. There needs to be a discussion about whether modern identity is valid or not. All right, so the last way that I'll talk about that we form our identities now is through politics. Because we no longer have inherited identities, but identities we choose and must express, we now turn to politics for identity, for our source of meaning. The politics is not not about hammering out policy right now. It's about expressing our identity, who we are, who we align with. On both sides, we're not just communicating a position on a certain issue. We're airing to the world who we are. And because modern identity is fragile, it requires other people to affirm that identity. So we link up with people who share that. And because we need to be affirmed, we feel threatened around people with different positions because our identity is being threatened, not just a policy issue. So consider this, perhaps. Much of our outrage, and we saw a lot of outrage on all different sides this last year, is because we see our politics not just as participation in public life, but as an expression of our identity. All right, so I'm going to do an aside here. About intake. Um, So I'll talk about what what the Bible says about identity in just a minute. First, I want to say... Uh, talk about intake, we're, we've seen how modern identity is so baked into life that we're exposed to it hundreds of times a week. We see it on billboards and commercial, music and in the checkout line, Instagram and Twitter. 
Everywhere we're being sold an identity. And whether we realize it or not, we're being influenced by it. Later, I'm going to present some ways that Scripture and the church can counterform us. But here I just want to say that we need to be mindful of our exposure to these things, from Instagram to cable news to sitcoms. Obviously, we, can, we can't just shut off the world. There, there can't be complete avoidance. But there needs to be some curbing of the intake. So if you spend all day on Instagram, it'll be so much harder for you not to tie your identity to your appearance. If you spend lots of time scrolling through political news, it will be almost impossible for you not to tie your identity to politics. So we need to guard our intake. If we don't, we're going to be swallowed up by modern identity, and it's going to leave us fragile and crushed. All right, so we've gone over what modern identity is. Now I want to spend some time talking about why modern identity is harmful. So modern identity has a lot of problems. But because almost everyone shares assumptions, the assumptions of modern identity, we seldom look at, at why these assumptions might be bad because it's just the air that we breathe. So we seldom talk about them. We seldom recognize the possibility that they might even, the, the possibility that they might be bad. So let's take a look. Reasons why modern identity, there are problems with modern identity. The first problem is that it is incoherent. So British writer, Francis Bufford, puts it this way. He says that you are a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you, what, so that you truly want to possess and you truly not, want not to at the very same time. You're being equipped for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. He's saying your desires are contradictory. So if, according to modern identity, you're looking inside for who you are, what you're going to find is a bunch of contradictory things. You want to be healthy, and you want to eat tons of dessert. You want to be faithful to your spouse, and you want to indulge your lusts. If you look inwardly long enough and honestly enough, you'll find a series of competing and contradictory desires and intuitions. Which one is the real you? If you're looking inward for your identity, you're going to waffle between lots of things, many times contradictory things. Modern identity is incoherent. Next, modern identity is an illusion. Tim Keller gives an illustration that I think is so helpful. He says, imagine you have an, an Anglo-Saxon warrior in, in 700 AD. And he has two main impulses. He has an impulse towards homosexual desires, and he has an impulse towards rage and aggression. And he's a warrior. And that time, so they're going to tell him, your rage and aggression is who you are. You need to act on those. You need to suppress the homosexual desires. That's not who you are. Now imagine a guy in modern Manhattan with the same two desires. He has... He has these, these impulses towards rage and aggression, and he has these impulses towards homosexual desires. His culture is going to tell him, your homosexual desires, that's who you are. You need therapy for your rage and aggression. That's not who you are. Here's the moral. If all we did was look inward to find who we are, like modern identity tells us, 
then the modern Manhattanite wouldn't be told that his sexual impulses is the real him while his anger needs therapy. But he is told who the real him is by his culture. He's listening to society by defining himself by his sexuality. He is given a moral grid that allows him to determine his identity. In other words, modern identity is an illusion because you get this grid to interpret your emotions, your inside, from someone else. You aren't just looking inward. You're using a grid imposed on you by other people. So Robert Bella, is a, he was a sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley. And, and he writes this, quote, The irony is that here, too, just where we modern people think we are most free, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. For it is a powerful cultural fiction that we not only can, but must make up our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private lives. So it's saying that uh, you get your beliefs and your intuitions from other people, whether you recognize it or not. So this, this uh, modern identity notion that you can just look inside, that's where you need to get your identity. It's an illusion. That's not what's, that's not what's happening. Your culture is the one telling you to do that. And Bella, I think, is so insightful. Just when we think we're most free, we're actually most captive by our culture. You're, actually, you're giving your culture more power even if you're, modern, if you're working with modern identity and this front. Modern identity is an illusion and is untruthful in this way too. It says it can be abandoning, it says it is abandoning expectations. It follows some rules, but it's not. It's merely creating a different set of rules and expectations. It follows some rules and rejects others. For example, the Gatorade commercial that I showed where with Fernando Tatis Jr., he tells us that breaking the rules is cool. Does he also think that it's cool to break the steroid policy in MLB baseball? No, he doesn't. Does he think it would be cool if Gatorade was including harmful things in their product? No, he doesn't. He doesn't think that breaking all the rules is cool, just the rules that society has given him. So modern identity is untruthful here. It is giving you expectations. And it creates new rules. So if you're a Christian, it says, you need to change and follow these new rules about identity in order to participate in the public square. Otherwise, you can't participate. All right, so modern identity is incoherent. It's an illusion. It's fragile. So in traditional identity, if your mother or father said that you were great, you probably felt you were great. But with modern identity, you're supposed, you are supposed to be the validator, but you can't do it. We're social beings that need outward affirmation. Our identity is formed through dialogue with other people. You come out of yourself needing endless affirmation, according to modern identity. And because of that, modern identity is the most fragile in history. So think about the main fillers of modern identity. Sexuality, what we buy, politics. Do you see how volatile those things are? And how volatile people become when those become their identity? 
you, you can't be around other people who disagree with you because you feel attacked and threatened, that you're being harmed. So modern identity is fragile. So modern identity is also crushing. Traditional identity was about fitting in. Modern identity is about standing out. So in every conversation, every social media post, every encounter, we're told that we have to perform. We have to present an image of ourselves that we think will win us favor in the eyes of other people. Uh, Sherry Circle, who's a professor at MIT, she wrote a book called Alone Together, and this is a passage from that. So she's interviewing uh, this young girl, so just quote, Mona, a freshman at Roosevelt, has, has recently joined Facebook. Her parents made her wait until her 14th birthday, and I meet her shortly after this long-awaited day. Mona tells me that as soon as she got on the site, immediately I felt power, she said. I asked her what she means. She says, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to broadcast the real me. But when Mona sat down to write her profile, things were not so straightforward. Whatever, uh, whenever one has time to write, edit, delete, there is room for performance. The real me turns out to be elusive. Mona wrote and rewrote her profile. She put it away for two days and tweaked it again. Which pictures to add, which facts to include, how much of her personal life to reveal, should she give any sign that things at home were troubled, or was this a place to look good? End quote. Part of the irony of modern identity is that even though you're told to look inside to create your identity, you need other people to affirm it even more than in traditional identity. If you're in high school or college, it means that you're in a time of your life when you're trying to figure out who you are. And your culture is telling you to do this by creating, by creating your identity, buying certain clothes or gadgets, having a boyfriend or girlfriend. But, but that creation, that pressure to perform will crush you. You'll always feel uprooted, frantically trying to get different identities to find which one fits. God gives us such better ways to craft our identity, to have an identity. Before I close out this section on modern identity, I want, I want to just note again that not all features of modern identity are bad. Daniel Tiger isn't all wrong. It's not all wrong that we, that we look inside at our desires to see what we want, how we're wired. Uh, it can be a good thing. And on the flip side, traditional identity can also have some really dark sides as well. It can be suffocating and cause tons of resentment. Uh, it can be ugly, especially when the, the things that it loves are counter to what God has designed. So Christianity isn't all traditional or all modern. It takes parts of both, and that requires discernment. All right, let's move on to, to compare, compare Christianity with modern identity. Let's look at the Christian alternative. To start, let's look at modern identity and wisdom. The difference between submitting and expressing. It's fascinating to examine modern identity alongside of Proverbs and a book like James, the wisdom, some wisdom literature. Not all principles of modern identity are unbiblical, but the foundations are vastly different from Scripture. Modern identity tells us that we should look inward for our self-worth, to follow our own hearts, no matter what other people say about us, to just express who we are. And here's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says that we need to submit. It says that we need to submit to God. 
We submit to God by fearing him. Modern identity says that you should follow your heart and look inward. Proverbs says you should submit to God and distrust your heart. That the heart of being a Christian means submitting to God. So this is what Proverbs 1, 7 says. The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Proverbs 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So what does it mean to fear God and to submit to him? First, it means obeying his rules. When God says something, we're expected to obey it, but we do it because it's for our good. Again, God is infinite in wisdom, and he designed the world with that, with that wisdom. So what, when we obey his rules, it is good. Submitting God to God means obeying his rules, and this overlaps, but it, it can be a little different. It means submitting to the way that he made the world. So when God made the world, he kind of wove wisdom, a certain way of being into the world. And submitting to God means submitting to the way that he made the world, submitting to some of those constraints. We can't just look inward and then do whatever our hearts desired. We need to look outward at God, how God has made the world, and we must submit to it. For example, we see that hard work leads to success. We should work hard. We see that denying lust and choosing a good wife leads to a happy life. So we should do that. We, we work within the confines of the world that God has made. So modern, for another example, modern identity says that we can do whatever we want with our bodies and with the world. But Proverbs says that reality is fixed and we should submit to the way that God made it. All right, so the next part. We should submit to parents by obeying them. So children should submit to parents by obeying them. Modern identity says, don't let anyone determine your identity for you. Follow your heart. Parents should free their children to allow them to follow their hearts. Again, that's not all wrong. There, there should be some freedom, some attention to uh, the uniqueness of an individual and their wiring. But it has major problems when it gets taken as a foundation. So Proverbs 1, 8 through 9 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland, to grace, a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. The need to create our identity and express ourselves leaves us shallow. I said earlier that it, that it crushes us. As parents, we can help our kids by passing down love, warmth, and these good things through traditions that we establish. We can give our kids traditions and things to do, things that stabilize them and ground them in a world that is pulling them in all different directions. But make sure what you pass down honors God. And make sure the way that you pass it down honors God. Um, so this is where traditional identity can be destructive. You can be controlling and overbearing. You can also pass down values that are idolatrous. For example, you can really want your kids to succeed in life, which is not wrong, but you can put enormous pressure and conditional love on them that they, that they achieve academically or in sports, and that will crush them. 
You don't pass down values like that. Um, there are other uh, tips, examples of ways that we can pass down things to our kids. I heard an example of a pastor, an older pastor who had read through his Bible, and when he read through his Bible, he marked it up, and then he gave it to his, his son, and he had several kids, so he did that over again for each kid. He read his Bible, marked it up, and gave it to his kid. That's a way of grounding them, of passing down to our kids something that is incredibly good and grounding. Um, we can pass on other traditions as well, traditions in which we can express that unconditional love and where we can teach things about the world. So looking back on my teens, I see how grounding some of the things my dad did with me were. like Hunting and fishing and sports and, and writing me letters. Uh, they were grounding to me now, then, and they're actually more grounding to me now when I look back on them. I have something that's been passed down to me that, that means that I have some stability. Uh, having something that's passed on, our, our culture says that's the problem. You should be free from the restraints and constraints of the past. But we want, uh, but it's actually asking to be free from things that are life-giving and good. And, and children and students, receive good gifts from your parents. Uh, don't, uh, now parents shouldn't pressure their kids to do things that are unbiblical, but also make sure that the kids, you, you receive what is good from your parents, from your mom and dad. All right, we also want to submit to friends by heeding their counsel. So modern identity says, choose friends who affirm you and make you happy. Proverbs says, choose friends who love you and sometimes correct you. Proverbs says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy has multiple kisses. Uh, and we see modern identity and suffering. Modern identity says that the point of life is to be happy, so avoid hardship and suffering. It preaches the gospel of self-esteem, but what happens when life goes south? When you lose your job or your money, when your boyfriend breaks your heart, when your body breaks down, what happens when we suffer? Again, if you're in high school, think about how people around you deal with hard things. When their source of identity falls through or is threatened, do you see how their lives can fall apart? Uh, all of our lives will fall apart if the grounding of our identity is in how we feel. But contrast that to a book like James that says that suffering makes us steadfast. Suff Count it all joy when you experience trials of different kinds. Suffering is actually a gift. It makes us grounded. It, it strips us of sin. It drives us closer to God. And here's the irony. If you chase happiness and self-esteem, you'll be miserable in the end. But if you chase holiness and faith, you'll find happiness and deeper self-esteem in the end. And that happiness will be resilience. All right, let me talk about modern identity in the church. Modern identity says that church is, or any group is a community, uh, it's a place where you can express yourself, a place where people meet your needs. But scripture says that the church is a place where you commit to God's people, 
submit to leadership and play your role well. It's a place that gives you a role based on, on a number of things that, that the world sees as constricting. It says that, that men should behave a certain way and women should behave a certain way. Older men this way, older women this way. So whether you're old or young, a man or a woman, it gives you a role. In other words, it says there are things that you can and can't do based on these things. And modern identity says that's restricting and oppressive. But if the church was designed by a loving father, then these roles are not restrictive, but life-giving. And the further you press into the life of the church, and the further you press into your role, the more joy that you'll receive from it. Let me make another comment on church and identity. Uh, Some of the most meaningful things in my life have been when some things that older men in the church have said to me. Uh, Those relationships have done so much to ground my identity as a Christian and as a member of God's people. So older men, you have such power to bestow stability and grace on younger men. All right, so that's how the church relates to modern identity. Uh, Let's talk about how modern identity relates to the gospel. Modern identity tells us to look inward for affirmation. Don't let other people drag you down. Just follow your heart. That's all you need. Tim Keller addresses this uh, by saying, quote, in the end, we can say to ourselves, I don't care that literally everyone else in the world thinks I'm a monster. I love myself and that's all that matters. That would not convince us of our worth unless we are mentally unsound. We need someone from the outside to say that we are of great worth and the greater worth of that uh, that someone or someone's, the more power they have to instill a sense of self and self-worth. Only if we are approved and loved by someone whom we esteem can we achieve any self-esteem. We are irreducibly social and relational beings. We need someone we respect to respect us. Even when modern people claim to be validating themselves, the reality is they are always socializing themselves into a new community of cheerleaders, of people whose approval they crave. End quote. We crave the approval of others, whether we're in traditional identity or modern identity. In both cases, you are the one who must earn approval. You are the one who has to perform. When you disappoint your parents in a traditional society, then you can have no reason to live. You disappoint people around you. If you're in modern identity, when you lose a lover, when your sexuality isn't affirmed, when you fail at your work, you're crushed and don't have reasons to live. But with the gospel, we're given an identity. Or as Keller puts it, unlike traditional or modern identity, the Christian identity is received, not achieved. The Christian identity is received, not achieved. Listen to this passage from 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were received no mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that verse is a reference, has a reference to the book of Hosea. It was a time when Hosea, who had prostituted herself out, was most unlovable and most dejected. In an honor-shame culture, She was pretty much at the bottom of society, a piece of trash with no value, no usefulness to anyone. She had failed on every account. 
And God tells Hosea to go find her. It says, it says in Hosea, the Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she was unlovely, uh, she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love sacred raisin cakes. As we read on in 1 Peter, we hear that we enjoy this relationship with God, this status as God's people, because Jesus gave his life on our behalf. Here's the Son of God, the one who's infinitely valuable and praiseworthy, and he gives his life to buy back this wicked people, a people God compares to a prostitute. He replaces our dejection with a fierce love that is at all times devoted to our good. And so who's doing the validating? We need to be validated. Who's doing the validating here? God is the one who validates us. Our, our creator, the one who has approval, we so desperately want and were created for. So we get everything that modern identity so desperately craves but cannot get. And how are we validated? We're validated, but we don't earn it. Notice what happened in the story of Hosea. Gomer didn't buy herself back. Hosea did. He bought her. He paid for Gomer's mistakes and shame. And how do we get into God's family? We, we didn't do anything. We were born again through Jesus' resurrection. He is the one who granted our acceptance into his family. And because Jesus is the one who achieved our status, our identity for us, it's guaranteed. It's not based on our performance. It, it, it doesn't go up and down. It's what Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to the corporate employee who is crushed by the pressure to always perform, always stand out, always trample on others to get ahead, Jesus says, no, you're at my table. You can eat with me. You don't need to worry about what they say. To the teenage girl who feels like she's always having to look a certain way, always driven to find her identity in her body or her boyfriend, Jesus says, you're mine. To the mom who feels crushed by all the pressures to look perfect, God tells her, you don't have to earn my love. Jesus already earned it for you. See, the gospel tells us you are more sinful and broken than you even know, but in Christ you are more loved and accepted than you ever dare dream. It started with the image of an orchard with, with malnourished trees. And the problem was the soil. Uh, tonight we've looked at the soil, this pervasive ideology that shapes so much of us. The modern identity leaves us hungry and sick. The gospel offers a better soil. It offers wisdom, a people, and the gospel. So may we grow our identities in this rich and life-giving soil. Let me pray for us, and then we can do a Q&A. God, we, we praise you for this identity that you've given to us. Uh, help us to embrace it, to embrace your, your people, the church, to embrace your word and be formed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks, Justin. So what I'd like us to do, um, we have a mic right here in the middle. If you've got a question, if you're here in person, you have a question, you can come to the mic. Um, if you're at home, I think we should have on the live stream a, a phone number that you can text, and I'll get that on my phone so I can give those questions to Justin as well. I don't know how many we'll get, so we may not get to them all, um, but we'll get to as many as we can. So let's take 10 minutes or so of questions. Um, if you have one, you can move to the, to the mic, or I'll take it on my phone. Let me, let me start. Um, Justin, you, I thought it was helpful when you brought in aspects of the ways that, that this is forming um, children in schools, the way it's affecting things we, we can't see. Uh, what are some ways, you've got young kids, what are some ways you're thinking about this in your parenting of your children, helping them to embrace an identity shaped by scripture rather than an identity shaped by this modern conception of look inside, mm -hmm. make yourself... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in some of these ways, I think we're, uh, kind of what I see my task as is just raising the issues so we can try and figure out these issues together. Uh, so I have, I can see some of the, the things that are shaping us from just kind of making it up as, some of it up as I go to, um, and how I can form my kids. Um, but some of the things are things like, um, kind of doing things with my kids, uh, giving them, uh, say, like a love of reading and, and books or uh, sports, where they, areas that they can cultivate virtue in formation, um, but through that, just expressing love and care for them mm -hmm. uh, and passing things down to them. And I, I really appreciate it. So Brett was the one who gave me the example of uh, the pastor who'd passed on his Bibles. Like, I love that. Like, passing things on, something like that, onto your kids. Um, so it's something that I'm thinking about as I, as I look back on things that, that my dad did for me that were, were grounding and significant, like some of those, those passions that he, he gave. Um, and uh, just trying to think through um, what does it look like in, in my situation. So I'm just trying to raise some of the questions you can think through these things as well, especially if you're raising kids or uh, you're thinking about your grandkids. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, we've got, let me, go ahead. Uh, Eric, you can stand there, and then I'm going to get this one from uh, someone watching at home. Um, what are some practical ways we can create a balance between not being consumed by media and the outside world, but also being in the world as a Christian? So you brought up this idea of, reducing your intake, assume that what you're consuming is forming you, yeah. um, so reduce your intake, but how do, we, how do we do that wisely without retreating altogether? Yeah. I think it could mean uh, teaching as kids are exposed to some of these things, right? Giving, uh, so they're, they're going to be taught that the reason you should do good is because it's, it, it makes you feel good. Well, we need to give them more reasons to do good than just them feeling good. We need to ground them uh, in, in the Christian story, um, help them to be involved in the church, and not to be involved in the church just because it's a place where you can feel good and express yourself, but to be involved in the church because this is a place where 
you're grounded in God's work in the world. You're grounded in the story that is so deeply compelling. Uh, so some of those resources, I think, can address these questions. The uh, You Are What You Love by James K. Smith. I think he does a really good job at, at, at talking about what I just mentioned. Uh, so that's, that's a great resource. Uh, and related to that last question, uh, something like The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. Uh, I really appreciated that book because uh, one of the reasons we're so swayed and uh, by, by what we buy is because our homes have kind of been consumption-centric. Uh, so in the past, the home was a place where you did work and produce things, and now it's just a place that you consume. And so your identity is then, then gravitated and pulled towards what you consume rather than what you're doing together with these people and being, being on mission with your family. So I'd say making, making your house a place where you produce things and do things together. So I think that's where it ties into the things that my, my dad did with me that were, were really formative and that, that cultivated something in me. Mm-hmm. That's good. Eric. Uh, Justin, thank you for grappling with these things and putting this together. It's really helpful because, as, as you said, this is culture. Even if we're not thinking about it, it this is there. Mm-hmm. So on that note, um, how would you, and I mean, all of us would have to use wisdom and discernment with this question, how would you dialogue about this topic with someone who's not a Christian, might not even think about things on this level, but it's just, they're there, even if they're mm-hmm. not calling it modern identity or being yep. able to articulate something. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I've been thinking about that, and there's not necessarily something easy because those layers that are underneath of it, they, they take time to, to work themselves out. So one, one way I've th- thought about it is this. So someone says, this is one of the biggest objections, on, I think, to Christianity. It's along the lines of, well, Christianity is a straitjacket. It, it just tells me that I can't do things. It just gets prized into my life. Why can't I just do what I want as long as I'm not hurting other people? And so to that... I would kind of go through the exercise that I, that I talked about uh, to kind of get at some of those underlying issues. Because I think basically baked into that question is the assumption that Christianity is wrong. So something's wrong with the question. To so say, imagine. Just try to imagine if that Christianity might be true. And if Christianity is true, then God is infinitely wise and infinitely good And he has things that are so good for us in his rules. And imagine then that these things that you're talking about don't hurt anyone are actually destructive. Um, And destructive for you, destructive for your relationship with God, for other people, destructive on all these different levels. If Christianity is true, then that is the case. So the question isn't, why shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't harm anyone? The real question is, is Christianity true? And until we've answered that question, we can't answer that, the main objection. So I would say, let's ask the question, is Christianity true or is modern identity true? Are these assumptions about what it means to be human? Because one insidious thing that modern identity does is it makes claims but never arguments. It never argues that the human person is this type of being. It always assumes it and asserts it. And that's insidious. Um, but so I think one thing 
that needs to be done is to kind of show that that's not an argument. That's a statement. Let's talk about that. Uh, give me reasons why that's true. Because if that's true, then you're right. I am a bigot for thinking that way. But if Christianity is true, then I'm actually loving by telling someone that they shouldn't do that. This is how I've thought about it. Yeah, let me, Brian, I got one from the from people at home, and then I'll get to yours. Um, maybe, maybe you answer this in the course of that, Justin, but we're getting a couple questions. Uh, how, how could you expand a little bit on how modern identity underlies what's happening in culture around homosexuality and uh, gender identity mm-hmm. and give some ideas for how we can engage with people around those topics? Yeah. I mean, so it underlies it because you don't inherit an identity anymore. You choose it. You don't, you don't accept as a given your body, uh, your sexuality. Um, those are actually the ways that you now express yourself and get your identity is by doing what you want in those areas. Uh, so if that, so that's, that's one piece of it. Another turn is that identity has become sexualized. So Carl Truman has a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you want a dense history of that, you can read that book. Uh, but he describes how identity has become sexualized and expressing that sexual desires is a way that you get affirmed in who you are as a human being. It's a way that you find worth. So now all of a sudden, when we're talking about sexual, uh, your sexuality, we're not just talking about um, pleasure, something that's, that's pleasurable. Uh, we're talking about something that's the very core of your being. They're being told that that's the core of your being. And so when someone tells you that you can't do that, that's hateful because of how it makes you feel. Because remember, the moral paradigm now is how it makes you feel. And that makes you feel really bad because you've been told that that's who you are. Um, so that's, that's what underlies. What was the second part of that? Uh, how do you engage with people yeah. then who are coming from that perspective? I, I think you got to that a little bit in the last question. Yeah. I, w- I want to get to Brian's. Go ahead. Part of my wrestle with identity over the years does come out of my church background. And I think, well, it wasn't explicit. It was very common in the 50s, 60s, 70s for your role whether it be in the church or your role as what kind of employment you do or your role as the husband or the wife, your role was equated with your identity Mm -hmm. in the church. And I have found my role changing drastically because of realities in my own life. And it really rocked me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I didn't hear you addressing that Part of it that's really something that probably comes from the 50s, 60s, 70s and may not be as relevant today, but I imagine that to some degree, we def- some of us at least still define us by w- ourselves by what we do. And I don't know if you have any quick responses to that, but mm-hmm. that's the one that I wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks, Brian. And Although modern identity is what's really pervasive, it's probably also the case that people in this room have exp- are from traditional uh, contexts. 
where they still feel defined by what their parents or what their role is. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes that can, be, that can be suffocating or it can be jarring because it's something that you can lose. It's something that changes. And that's where I think that that last part um, of just grounding ourselves as often as we can in this truth that our identity is, is received, not achieved. Right? That the, the primary thing, the thing that grounds us, the thing that we use to interpret all of these traditional roles is the gospel. Like we use, because sometimes they can get out of hand and they can lose their purpose and take out on an, an outsized role. So we just have to let the gospel be what grounds us fundamentally and then um, allow the gospel. We just have to be flexible as a community too uh, to make sure that our, the roles that we're giving uh, are, are good and the things that we're passing on to our children are good and not just, not just um, cultural idols. Christy, go ahead. I wonder, you've touched a few times on creation, and I wonder if that plays a bigger role in this than we might think, because if we see God as creator, we see him as the one who gives us our identity, the one mm -hmm. who can judge what's right and wrong in the world he's created. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we live in a culture who rejects God as creator and we're kind of these results of a process that happens, then we are kind of left to forge our own identity. So mm -hmm. maybe some of the conversations have to be pulled back to, we believe that there is a God who created us and mm -hmm. loved us and created this world and then kind of build from there. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. And I think a lot of it comes back to that exact thing of the doctrine of God as the creator and the doctrine of creation. So I think that's exactly right. Um, if God is the creator, then all of these things fall into place. And if he's not, then we are uh, being constraining and suffocating. But we have to ask that question first. So I think the more that we can get the question back there, uh, the better. Yeah. All right. Well, it, uh, it's 8 o'clock, so um, I'm going to close this with prayer. But if you have more questions for Justin, feel free to find him afterwards. If you're at home and you have questions that we didn't get to, um, you can email Justin or find him on Sunday. And uh, thanks. Thanks for serving us. Thanks for thinking hard for the Lord, lo loving him with your mind. Let's, let's pray. Um, Father, we are so grateful. We who are your people are so grateful to have an identity secure in Christ. We are so grateful that we have been told that we are righteous and we are loved and we are accepted and that we have an, an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us. That there are things about us that cannot be taken away. That our identity is secure. Um, God, we, and we, we grieve over the ways that we still, um, we still think of ourselves in ways that are fragile and, and easily shaken. Um, because of ways we're being formed. And we grieve for people around us, for our neighbors whom we love, who don't have the secure identity that we do. And we, we earnestly desire, God, that you would help us both to go deeper, ever deeper, into what you say about us in your word, and also to compassionately move towards our neighbors and help them to see the better way to live, um, 
to find identity in the love and the redemption of their creator. And so please help us as a church to do this. Please be near to our children and help them to live in the good of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming out.